0: Or another episode of Analytics Week Leadership Podcast. Today we, ha- we have with us Scott Zoli from FICO. A brief introduction. Scott uh, is a Chief Analytics Officer at FICO, responsible for uh, analytic development of FICO's product and technology solutions, including FICO's uh, Falcon Fraud Manager. We'll briefly talk about that uh, late in later part of the session. Uh, with Protect, uh, so Uh, which protects about two-thirds of the world's payment card transactions from fraud. While at FICO, Scott has been responsible for authoring 72 analytics patents, uh, with 36 granted and 36 in the process. Scott is actively involved in the development of new analytical products and big data analytical applications, many of which leverage new streaming analytics, intelligent innovations, such as adaptive analytics, collaborative profiling, and self-learning models scott is most recently focused on uh, application of streaming self-learning analytics for real-time detection of cybersecurity attacks and money laundering scott serves on two boards of directors including software san diego and cyber Security center uh, and cyber center of excellence scott received his phd in theoretical physics from duke so scott uh, welcome to the podcast
1: Thank you so much, Vishal. Pleasure
0: to be here. So, uh, I think let's let's get uh, on it. So, uh, fascinating uh, profile, by the way. I, I was intrigued by your depth of understanding on the security, and I think I would definitely walk you uh, walk with you through your journey. So, why don't we start with um, your background? What has led you to this point? And if you can share some of your experience, that will be that will be really amazing. Yeah,
1: no, happy to do so. So. Um, I um, I got my PhD from, from Duke University, and at, at Duke, what I specialized to is in theoretical physics, and in particular, I, what I was working on is understanding physical systems and changes in behaviors. So, for example, the transition from stable activity to chaotic behavior or turbulent behaviors, right? And so, the types of problems that I was working on was trying to understand transitions and behaviors of systems, right? Um, and uh, it, at the same time, I got a, uh, a, a computational science uh, fellowship from the Department of Energy and they were focused on computational science, high-performance computing, right? And that took me, after my days at Duke University, to, to Los Angeles National Laboratory, where I spent a lot of my time applying the physics that I, that I understood and the computation that I, that I enjoyed doing to the problems that they had around chaos theory, around turbulence, around simulation. In about 1999, I got really intrigued with the the whole concept of artificial intelligence, uh, pattern detection, and in terms of fraud, right? Um, Because if you think about, you know, fraud, um, you you are looking at now behaviors of people. Um, People are pretty interesting, and they're not physical systems. Like if I put a a, some fluid within a within a small sort of beaker and started to boil it and figure out the transition to to, from a static state. To, say, a state. And so I looked at this company. The company was called HNC Software. It was later acquired by FICO. And what was really amazing to me was that they had this, this
0: humongous
1: data set, which was around payment card transactions, right? And you know, at the time, and I still think it's true, it's one of the most interesting data sets to apply science to. Um, and so I made a transition in my career from being in this sort of physics area um, and uh, kind of research lab area to joining this company agency software which later became FICO, primarily because I felt that some of the problems I could work on as a scientist were very, very interesting because of the data assets that the company had as part of their core business of developing these, these broad models. And from that time forward I spent my time, as, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, you know, innovating analytics specifically to behavioral detect, uh, detection of changes, uh, novel streaming analytics to really help attack primarily say, security issues, but also uh, a wide variety of other things that FICO is interested in. And I've been with FICO for now 17 years um, since that
0: decision in, in 1999 and just just really enjoyed it and loved it. Wow. I think that's, that's, that's quite a journey. So, so let, let's talk about... Um... I think seventy-two paid applications on security. I think that speaks about uh, how seriously FICO takes um, security and and fraud detection uh, into account. So tell me tell me briefly about what is uh, Falcon's fraud manager like? What uh, if, if whatever you can share that that would be helpful?
1: Sure. So Falcon is uh, and and the models within Falcon is a, a technology that focuses on. Understanding the the, the transacting behavior of every payment card it monitors. So if you think about the the payment cards, the credit cards and debit cards in your wallet, right? each of those will have a uh, a, a, a hashed um, number associated with the the payment card. We never see the payment card number and we never see the details, we don't see the name or anything else that's on the card. We just keep track of the card as a tokenized entity. But what we see is the authorization activity associated with that card as you spend. Uh, and from there, what you can do is you come up with what we use transaction profiling, which says what are the typical or atypical behaviors of these payment cards over time, so that we can go and, and make create features, right? And these features maybe will also be simplistic for things like, okay, Michelle's spending three times as much as he typically does on a transaction, and he's making this large transaction at jewelry jewelry shop, and he's out of town, right? And, and so that could be legitimate, but it could also be very non-legitimate if if it doesn't fit your typical sort of payment behavior and and transaction behavior associated with that card. Um, So we keep track of those features and and a large number of different features that look at an abnormal and a a behavior associated with transaction activity and then we primarily will generally apply a neural network to to that um, to come up with a score. And the score goes from 1 which is very likely non-fraud to 999 which is very likely fraud. Um, and, and that score then becomes embedded typically in our customers' fraud um, systems and fraud operations where they'll write rules around that score and, and that's usually when you may get a phone call, let's say that says, okay, were you in Montreal making this transaction at a jewelry store? And, right, and you could say, yes, I am, I'm on vacation, right? And that would be a false positive or you say, no, I'm not, wow, I'm glad, glad you detected that transaction. Um, what's really powerful about Falcon is that, you know, it's been a dominant sort of, uh artificial intelligence technology, protecting these payment cards for more than two decades. And in fact, it's one of the earliest examples of commercialization of artificial intelligence in in this business area. And so as we look to other parts of FICO's business, it's really an example of how mature business analytics and understanding of uh, how to operationalize uh, these analytics can really make an impact on an industry. Um, Back when Falcon was introduced, um, probably... spiraling out of control and people usually dealt with it from a bunch of rules right and you know that's not a very a uh, satisfying sort of um, way to attack the problem because of all the false positives and so it was just the right solution uh, at the right time uh, and it's continue to get better over time but that's what it does it's monitoring those transactions and casting a decision or, or, or a recommendation based on a score whether or not there's a higher probability or low probability of, it, of that transaction being Consistent or inconsistent
0: with that cardholder's behavior. Right, <clears throat> uh, and thank you so much for sharing that. I think I truly appreciate that. So you dabble into one of the areas that I was I, actually had I planned for the later part of the session, but I think I should bring it up right now. Is uh, the AI usage in the security industry? I think one of the one of the hallmark of whenever you say the best use case scenario for AI, um, security is one of those one of those things where sort of it, it can learn the patterns and behavior, and then from that, any anomaly is. Um, a, a red check mark, or at least worth considering for. So from and and, and I think you pretty much um, uh, endorse the fact that you have been on this problem for the last two decades. I think that 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 very very comforting to know. So definitely, so I I would love to have your perspective on what are some of the good uh, or some of the areas on AI which you think. So this is one of the area where AI works. So do you know one of one of the areas where you have tried AI? In, in in whichever shape or form it it and it didn't work.
1: So um, you know what we find is AI in its in its normal state it, it can be very very powerful. There's a few areas where we have to use caution, right? Um, you know one area in particular, and it depends on the type of artificial intelligence. But you know take take let's take an example of a neural network model, right? The reason why we use neural network models in payment card fraud is we have you know, more than two decades worth of, 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 of these cardholder behaviors and transactions over two decades and, and two-thirds of the world's payment card transactions. It's a Tremendously large data set and we can afford to build a neural network with lots of degrees of freedom. Okay? And fraud does change, right, and it's an adversary that's constantly changing, but we have really good technologies to understand that. And we've added to that, that technology uh, over time to do more self-adaptation of these models. If you look at, let's say, cybersecurity, uh, it's still artificial intelligence we use, but not a typical one like a neural network-based model. The models there have to be self-learning, right? And 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 so that's a, a difference, right? And and the key difference is, and the question you have to ask yourself when you want to apply artificial intelligence is, do you expect the data you see in the future to resemble that in the past? It's, it's, you know, we ask that all the time when we build models. So it becomes very critically important when it comes to security because you know we're not looking at gradual shifts in the economy or, or carpenter or sentiment right we're looking at active adversaries that are trying to work around the defenses and trying to learn the way the behaviors of models or behaviors of the banks or, or security professionals that are defending against it right and so I still deem it as artificial intelligence but it's not going to be a neural network model it's not going to be some you know variant of, of a deep learner um, because that places way too much focus on the historical data and enough emphasis on the real-time learning that has to occur in terms of what's happening here and now. And in particular, in cyber, we see that all the time, right? The models have to adjust to real-time attacks and real-time tactics that the criminals are, are, are using to try to infiltrate an organization, as an example.
0: Interesting, interesting. And I think um, you touched on um, another very interesting point. So I was, I was having a conversation with one of the, one of the bank uh, analytics executives, and he, he was sharing his concerns on uh, as the risk is, is, is evolving, right? And you, you pointed out uh, in, in your answer previously as well, that um, with every sort of variable payment or with every new mode of payment, because now there's a cryptocurrency, there's a lot of other things, the entire um, slew of classifiers and sort of predictors and, and a lot of these um, and thresholds change. So how does a company like FICO, whose whole sole uh, business is in figuring out uh, the credibility of, of, of data and credibility of um, these individuals or transactions and what and whatnot, how is, how is FICO coping up or, or a company like FICO copes up with, with these evolving um, new sort of products and, and offerings uh, that pretty much change the fundamental way people do transactions nowadays?
1: Yeah, so, so, so great question, so so as another example in Falcon in particular, right, in payment cards, you know, that's a very, very old sort of channel for to use in transactions, it's still very popular, right, I mean, it, I'm much more apt to do transactions with my credit cards and my debit cards or my cash than I am necessarily to pay with Bitcoin or mobile banking or what have you, but these channels are opening up and we see different demographics using them more, and so that poses a big challenge for AI and, and traditional model building because the historical value you have from last month may not represent next month because it's a new adoption of a technology, right? So in those scenarios, we leverage, um, we leverage two major technologies. One is kind of outlier analytics, right? So we look at adding models. So these are the self-learning models that will look at a question of, say, okay, here are all the kind of risk features associated with Scott's use of the mobile banking channel. How does his variables related to fraud and risk compare to all the peers that are similar to Scott from a collaborative filtering perspective, right, so we can get a peer group, we know who Scott's peers are, we can compare his profile and some of the features that are kind of large, let's say, or risky, and how risky are they? So we can kind of quantify in comparison to everyone else using that channel, the, the the relative level of risk. The other thing that we do is we apply what we call adaptive analytics, and adaptive analytics is essentially focused on allowing the models to train and have a small degree, small number of degrees of freedom based on the real-time sort of a product analysts are working, right? And so they're they're smaller, they're more compact, they are allowed to adjust. Right. So we have both these sort of outlier methods that compare to the peer group that you're in right now in terms of what's happening in the payment channel and how it's evolving and its use. And then we have these adaptive models that allow us to tune the weights of those models based on the fraud analysts that are working cases and figuring out what does that outlier model do well on, what does it not do well on, so that we can allow that model to adjust based on very limited but very valuable feedback from the fraud analysts that are dealing with fraud in that new channel right now. Right? And that's how we deal with zero data. Or no data or limited data situations are those sort of models, right? Um, and, and it's really important to the point made because we need sufficient uh, fraud protections in these new channels, and that's where you know traditional predictive models become weaker if the you know if the data is very highly non-stationary.
0: Interesting. No, I think definitely a good point. And and you raised another interesting point. And and, and sorry, I'm just drifting away from our, 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 our typical. But I think you are raising some very interesting mm-hmm. interesting points. So. I think your your, your response sounded uh, almost like a center of excellence uh, for for cyber security and sort of these analytics so and I, I also saw on your LinkedIn profile that you are uh, helping with the cyber uh, center of, clinic center of excellence for cyber security and this is I think this is one of the not so talked about or freakishly talked about uh, topic so uh, like we, we meet two kind of people um, our, our professionals. One is frantically scared that how can they pull this thing through when there's increasing amount, uh, sort of uh, amount of attacks and sophisticated sort of uh, hacks that, that are happening today. And the other group is um, they have no clue. They say, "Okay, I'm waiting for some solutions to get it." It's it's, it's very premature, sort of, to invest into these kind of uh, technologies. So, to, from your perspective, I think walk us through. What, is, what does a cybersecurity center of excellence uh, looks like? And, and I think if, if you can dabble a bit on some of the best practices that uh, pretty much a, a business could do as a, as a first three or four steps to get on this journey to sort of starting understanding uh, the best practices, center of excellence uh, for getting their, their business secure.
1: Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. So the work I do on the, on the San Diego Cyber Center of Excellence is, is really collaboration with other member companies Bicycle being one of them, right? That that are focused and very concerned about the cybersecurity problem in, in, that we deal with today. And as you mentioned, right, the number of breaches where our our information, both personal and financial, are, are exposed, um, it, it's just simply alarming, right? And, it, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so that is accumulation of of you know the the very best defense contractors uh, in in our nation. Uh, those that work directly with the government and the and, and military and then you know people like FICO, companies like FICO that focus on the financial services industries and telecommunication industries and insurance what have you which are kind of the best of what industry likes to do and, and achieve, tries to achieve from a cybersecurity perspective. So the first part of it is around collaboration and sharing and so it's really important and I found this very early in my career uh, in cyber was you know, to talk to a lot of different People in different industries and how they view this problem. In fact, my initial interest in this in cybersecurity became because I was called to a special summit, uh, a government summit, where they recognized that FICO had operationalized use of AI in financial fraud. How can we operationalize use of analytics in cybersecurity? So the government was very interested in that, right? Because if you look at it today, a large company might have 500,000 alerts a day, in a day, right? So half a, half a million there's no way that they're working all those alerts. They're not working the right alerts, right, and so there's this humongous need for a, for a score. right? And so, you know, collaboration, recognition of the problem, understanding some of the, the cutting-edge areas of, of where we can address um, the cybersecurity threat is really important. And that's one part of this cybersecurity of excellence, is that for me to understand, well, you know, what are leaders like Spaywar doing when it comes to cybersecurity? What are their challenges, right, and, and what do know companies like Qualcomm or FICO uh, do in this area the second other part of this is, is around visibility of the problem right so we focus on the cyber center of excellence around making sure that we all have a common view around what this challenge looks like right um, and that we're not shy around it making sure that people are exposed to some of the inadequacies that exist today from a cybersecurity perspective so for as an example right If you're depending upon your firewall and signature based methods and and, and kind of rudimentary sort of behavioral sort of sequences to come up with a a defense for cybersecurity, it's not enough, right? And I think it's broadly getting more and more understood and accepted, right? And so then, as soon as that starts to be understood, then everybody at the table who has this problem says, you know, what's next, right? And so, you know, one of the areas of what's next is around, you know, what I was brought to from this government perspective or operationally not, think, analytics in this space, right? Um, and so that's one of the areas that then I focus on, right? Is And then FICO's focus on is, you know, bringing analytics that, you know, n- number one, can be used to prioritize the law of alerts that are already generated by systems in these large organizations as they try to protect themselves and their customers from threat. And then two, you know, understanding that the current methods maybe detect 99, 99.5% of the threat Right, but the one that gets through is the one that's really going to impact the organization and then start to look at other sort of ways of detecting threats such as behavioral analytics with kind of these self-learning models to go and, and kind of layer on top of you know, the existing sort of methodologies. And so that's what we focus on, our, you know, getting this broad sort of acceptance, this collaboration around best practices and then you know, what's next in terms of ensuring that we stay ahead of our, our adversaries here. And what's really interesting to me, frankly, is in cybersecurity, the adversaries are tremendously smart. Obviously, right? And 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 so that's a lot, um, you know, a, a lot of work to come up with analytics that can, you know, work to counteract some of those attacks and detect those attacks. And 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 so I think that's a really interesting area as a scientist to kind of focus at that sort of defensive posture of some of these adversary attacks. And um, the, the, the center of excellence, right, is, is really focused on topics like that. So we can improve the ecosystem. We can protect those organizations. We can educate, educate uh, these the different organizations around cyber threat. Right. Many small organizations don't have any really cyber security plan in terms of what happens if they get breached, or they don't have necessarily the very basics of uh, protection in place. In, in some cases. Right? So we also have this public advocacy thing where we say, listen, you know, be aware if you're a small to medium business and you get you get uh, you're under a cyber attack and, and you get breached, right? You know maybe about half of them go out of business in a year, right? That's a problem, right? It ends it ends organizations. It also exposes our information, and so it's a journey. I think it's gonna be the same sort of level journey that we've seen in fraud, where you know now fraud is been in such a state where you know we've we become very very comfortable with our clients around operationalized analytics. Cybersecurity really we're at the very beginning of this, but it'll be an interesting ride for the next, you know five to 10 to maybe 20 years is the adoption of these analytics become more and more prevalent and, and we see its operationalization of analytics and in fact in, in security
0: interesting uh, definitely a definitely a good thought there so uh, one other thing sort of that we we, we do hear a lot um, from many of the businesses uh, what are the what are the first few steps right so you you briefly mentioned that hey we have collaboration and sharing and have a visibility and sort of uh, of, of analysis and data and on what and whatnot. So I think one of the things that, that we do hear about is with that a part of a security issue is cultural, culture, yeah, the corporate culture as well, right? So should uh, a, a center of excellence be something that should come out, out of from the inside out of the business or should a company partner with some of the industry experts? Because I think FICO is, um blessed in some ways because their business rely on on being secure and, and providing the secure information but many of the other businesses who support uh they they are a, a very um, up and rising and not not definitely in the in the right area of security what are some of the best practices that these guys have like should they should they go out fishing for a product that help them uh, aggregate their resources and sort of help them create a center of excellence or should they create a company culture or sort of invite uh, uh, from a top-down uh, leadership perspective to start documenting and start sort of at least, as, as you were saying, uh, these collaborations and sort of counsel way to, to get the dialogue out and, and and helping sort of create this uh, best practices, center of, center of excellence. So what are some of your thoughts on, yeah. that, on that area? So, you know, I think one of the
1: first thoughts that I have is that, you know, for these organizations it's really important for it to be top down right so at the very high levels of the organization there has to be an emphasis on the importance of cybersecurity um, you know we're seeing regulations coming out of the EU which you know penalties for having a breach up to 4% of revenue right um, and so it's a very big issue it's, a, it's an issue for most boards that so they want to have a, a regular update as part of their, the board meetings around where are we from a cybersecurity perspective? How does our company look? Are we vulnerable or not? Right. And so one is around embracing that culture. Right. There should be a defined CISO. There should be defined, you know, sort of respect for the fact that both for the customer data that you hold, but also for the, the running of the company, you need to have it be at the very uh, top levels of the organization. Now, from there, right, that, that's a recognition of a need to make it a, a, a you know, a you know, a, a, not an IT function, but a, but an executive function, right? And then from there, it's a question of where, where where are we from a cybersecurity perspective? So, you know, there are a lot of ways to approach that. Um, you know, one way to approach that is, you know, you go off to any of centers of excellence and you say, listen, I'd like to get some advice around where we are today. I'd like to talk about what we're doing and, and where I see strengths and where I see weaknesses. And sometimes that's really valuable because it can open up, you know, different ways of thinking, right, um, in, in terms of, you know, are your defenses sufficient or not. Um, The other sort of thing that's out there today are, um, you know, you have penetration testing, right, where you can go hire a firm and they'll go and, you know, give you an indication of if I was going to attack you, right, there's all the holes I found, right, or I can't get in, right, and some of these things unfortunately uh, for some companies it's very easy to get in, right, Um, because companies do not understand all their assets, companies may be under investing in IT to keep these assets up to security standards, right? And you know we've actually developed a score, we call it the, the, the Enterprise Cybersecurity Score. It's a single score for an organization, Not like you have a FICO score from personal lending, right? But it's a score just for the organization and when we create that score and, and it's released now, um, what we're looking at essentially is the external posture of an organization to attack, right? And so you know, that's another way to get a, get one of these ESS scores and understand, you know, where do I lie compared to, to, to others from, from a cybersecurity perspective, right? And you know, it gives you an indication of the worst sort of assets. So you know, what to work first and how to improve, right? But I think anyone that's going to be looking at this problem, right, they, they need to make sure that it's important at the executive levels, right? to make sure that they know what within their local community who do they reach out to for advice. They should have a plan with the local FBI agencies or law enforcement in terms of if they see that they're being breached or attacked, right? And then there needs to be some very broad sort of understanding of how the defenses look today, right? And from there, you know, you can layer on products and technology, but there's a lot out there, whether it be pen testing, which is very manual and you allow someone to try to root, root attack you, or things like the CSA or which is a good industry score in terms of how you compare uh, to your peers in the sector or how you compare to the, to the industry overall and then track that over time to see what progress you're making. Um, so I I'd, I'd give those as the best practices to start, right, and then from there advice around where, where to go, either to, to where do you point your IT professionals so you, you start to take care of the weakest links in your, in your network that are exposed to the cyber criminals that are looking from the outside into your organization. Um, and then layer it on with potentially uh, products and other sort of uh, tools that can help prevent uh, these sort of attacks, right? The other thing I'd say, and it's a little bit hard for some people to accept, is it's much better to assume that you're already breached, right? Because it's much more realistic. And if you go into that vantage point, it's more about stopping the data from flowing out than building larger walls around an organization. And so I think that's the other sort of mentality that has to occur um, with these organizations um, because then you get into this proactive sort of approach to stopping your, your organization's data from leaving or stopping your customer's data from leaving your organization versus, you know, trying to build a bigger wall or a bigger motor on your organization, which is, you know, as we know today, it's probably not sufficient. It's part of the solution, but it's not the entire solution.
0: Right. I mean, it's interesting. And I think um, that that reminds me of a quote I read somewhere that there are like, they're, they're two type of businesses, one who know they are hacked and the others that um, one those businesses are hacked, and the other who don't know it yet. So um, I think that's uh, wisely said. So now let me let, let me uh, and, and thank you so much for this wonderful detour. I think it, it definitely um, very informative uh, to understand the the cyber like center of excellence and how to put together and, and very informative. So now let's let's talk about um, chief analytics officer at FICO. Like what does that role even mean? Like what? What's your role uh, uh, in, in in this in this fight? And I, I think briefly we mentioned uh, uh, in your intro as well that you're you sort of focus on creating the security product and, and platforms. So if you can if you can share some light about what is a chief analytics officer for a company like uh, FICO means?
1: Yeah, so for FICO, this, this role of chief analytics officer essentially means you're setting the direction for. The analytic technology roadmap, research, and and operationalization of these analytics in products that we develop. So it, it's a role that is you know part um, you know business leader, it's part research leader, right? It, it's part sort of kind of operations leader in terms of you know running teams, but really to have a very good view and pulse on wh- what do our customers need, need, right? So for a company like FICO. Um, you know, we, our business is centered around the development of analytics, and and we specialize on analytics for our clients, right? So that requires that we understand their business, it requires that we understand what is the state of art from an analytics perspective, and it requires a level of maturity in what analytics we apply, what will work well, what will not work well, right? And so my day-to-day is, you know, working with, you know, over 100 PhD scientists that are, are focused on the development of some of our key technologies, right? making sure that we incorporate that into our products and software, right, and meeting with our customers to understand, you know, what else can we do from an innovation perspective. And that kind of, you know, I was recently at our, our company's uh, sales conference and I, you know, it's just internal and I said, you know, all of these patents that I've worked on at FICO have all been inspired by customer problems. And so that's the that's the role of chief analyst officer at FICO is to make sure that analytics is not done for the sake of doing analytics, right, analytics is done for the sake of solving these, these business problems in, in, a, in a very differentiated way for our clients, right, and in the same way, you know, growing our scientists underneath us, helping them to develop um, in terms of their skill sets and in terms of their invention and, you know, having this, this, this large, very productive team which collaborate well, that learn from each other, that you know really create this environment of learning and, and of excellence in its own sense right, from an analytics perspective because if you look across this, the floor that I'm on, right, it, do, it doesn't matter which cubicle you walk into or which office you walk into, you're going to find somebody that has a unique sort of PhD, a unique sort of perspective. Right? We all align around how we want to develop our analytics, but so we can all learn from each other and that is the other part of what I try to do is foster this environment of continual innovation Continue learning, um, and you know that really makes it a very satisfying place for for myself, but also the scientists that, that that share this journey with me at FICO.
0: Interesting, interesting, and and uh, so so tell me about um, like how much of your role is in-facing versus out-facing. Like, uh, so you your role catered to the the FICO pretty much, or, or or FICO's client, or like what 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 is the split of, of that, if at all.
1: Yeah, the, the split's about 50-50. So oh, nice. you know, about 50% of the time, I'm with clients, right, and working with them, um, and then 50% is, is internally focused, right? Um, and so I, I think it's a good mix. I prefer to be a little bit more internally focused, so I spend more time with my family and what have you. But, <laughs> uh, but it's a good mix, because, again, we get inspired by our clients, right, and and, and, they, and they rely on us for this analytics. So it's a 50-50, and I think it's a good... It's a good combination, right? Because if we were in a, if we're isolated from our clients, we wouldn't build the right analytics and we wouldn't be market leading in so many different ways, right? And if we're always on the, on the road, right, then we wouldn't have time to deliver it. So 50-50, I think it's the right mix, really, for, for, for myself and, and, and for the organization.
0: Interesting, interesting. So um, I think one thing that, that we definitely heard about uh, from bunch of bunch of our interaction is the struggle of either chief analytics officer to pull up, resources to do some because i think it majority of it is, is it's it's kind of a a, a a long-term vision on research with the hope that the model that they create would add value right so it, it it's a huge cultural push uh, and whenever there's a change on the cultural side it's going to be it's going to be sort of slow and and, and difficult to sell this idea now that being said Again, FICO is lucky in that sense because uh, you are very data-driven uh, to begin with, and you have to be to stay competitive. But for a, for a, for a other businesses who are sort of following the suit, what are some of the some of your thoughts on up and aspiring, say, chief analytics officers uh, who are are aspiring to be these uh, these roles? How they can sell this idea of being analytics-driven or data-driven with a, in a company which is very gut-focused and sort of good business decision making uh company or something so what are some of your thoughts yeah so I think it's really
1: really important that you know you, you find the right sort of mentors and supporters uh, and, and as, as high up in the organization as you can right so very often right um, for, for these sort of roles like a chief operating officer or, or, or a head of sales right they're, they're gonna want to differentiate and one of the main ways to differentiate is to have analytics either in, in what you're selling right or analytics in terms of Development of, of your own business so I think you have to kind of focus on what are the right sort of stakeholders in your company that would care about an improvement in process and improvement in product right whether it be the CFO, a CTO a head of sales what have you right and 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 start to talk to them about the power of analytics and you know, fortunately I think there's so many examples out there around how analytics you know transform industries that you can kind of look to examples of those that have analytics within their offerings, right? They're more efficient, they're more attractive, right? They, they target customers better, right? Um, all those things are really, really positive. Or you can improve with, say a, 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 you know a, a process flow, right, from a manufacturing perspective. So I think that's one. Find out who those influencers are. Two would be find a concrete, small, sort of contained project. We can demonstrate that value. Right. Uh, it might be that you take three or four resources and you say, "Let me try to build a model and demonstrate why, you know, if I if I apply MLX in this way, right, that I can demonstrate to you that I I expect a 20% improvement in I don't know efficiency of staff or 20% improvement in detection of a of a or targeting of a customer, right? And I think you know that's a really really small investment where you kind of have this very small proof of concept. You make sure it's relatively short in duration so that people's attention don't get diverted, right? Um, but I think those are really important little, uh, you know, going to be important little wins that you can build a, a, a culture of analytics around. Right? I think, you know, going in with the sort of view that analytics is important and analytics should be part of our business, they're all two things, right? But it takes, it takes time uh, and depending on this company culture, right, it takes, you know, examples, right, and, and I think that's a big part of it. So I think, you know, those that are trying that path need to think kind of very strategically how to partner with the business. The business is focused on trying to make sure that they delight their customers, they make, they make profits for, let the investors, right? If you can find a way to align with that and improve that, right, then one starts to see, you know, a, a lot of advancement and, and also a lot of energy around adoption of analytics and in, in processes.
0: Interesting, interesting. And I think, um, what, so I want to briefly touch with you um, with this idea of, it's a very philosophical idea of uh, art versus science. So I think analytics being a very scientific, statistically compliant phenomena, and business's competitive edge has been like your art, your art, right? So your culture, which defines a competitive edge. Now uh, I think there has been a lot of confusion on a un- doing analytics as a competitive edge, right? So now one of the argument that we we do find ourselves in uh, nowadays is. If you became if you make science as a competitive edge, it's very predictable. Like right? so, definitely it looks good on books, but then the more the moment you have it, everyone has it. So, what are some of your thoughts on um, how analytics is sort of shaping the art versus uh, the science debate for like businesses' competitive edge?
1: Yeah. So you know, my, I guess my view is is really you know the analyst should be a tool. To make sure that you keep with your culture, you keep with your arts, right? Um, and so, you know, like very often we, we see this sort of this, this fear of AI taking over all our jobs, right? You know, AI is not at that stage, right? AI is really, really valuable tools, right? And so, if I look at like the 9,000 banks that use Falcon today, right? Um, they're leveraging these artificial intelligence models. They produce these very highly predictive scores, but they also layer on their own rule-based strategies in terms of what. They value and how they want to work cases, right, and that's the sort of art around their processes and, and art around how they want to leverage a score, right, and so I think we have to find ways to, to stay true to the culture, right, I mean if your culture is about customer satisfaction, right, there's plenty of ways to come up with a very predictive score, right, for example you get a score that says that Scott's an unsatisfied customer is probably going to stop in your customer in six months because he had a bad interaction, right, knowing that you could go about that and they can apply whatever art they want to that right and the culture they have around it is really really powerful so I think you have to look at it from a tools perspective and it's and and where you have a culture and where you have art around that culture and how you differentiate your your company just use it as tools because that's really going to be the the most important way to use use these scores right Um, and these analytics is that it's really advance your, your, your ability to stay true to yourself as a company and stay true to your culture and how you want
0: to differentiate from all the rest that might be like you in the market space. Interesting, and definitely a very valid point. So now, now, now let's spend some time on the challenges you face um, with your role. So what are some of the some of the challenges of whatever you can share, uh, some of the challenges that you face as a chief analytics officer and some of the ways you sort of try to uh, work over it or something or work around it?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I'm kind of blessed because, you know, I, I think at a company like FICO, right, there's a huge amount of understanding how important it is that we analytics differentiate, right? I, I think, you know, the challenges that I have probably are, are around, you know, um, having way too much work to do or having to prioritize what makes the most sense, right, um, in terms of work, right? And so, you know, it, it's the kind of, a, you know, as everyone would probably say, well, a lot a good problem to have. You have a lot of work to do. You have a lot of research directions. and so. Um, you know, as, an, as a scientist, right, um, and, and, and managing a, organiza- a large uh, organization, of a large number of scientists, I think one of the challenges is to make some of those prioritization decisions, right? To make sure that there's a common understanding, right? When you work with a, a workforce that you know has, a, you know, ha- have all these PhDs, have their own ideas or directions, right? You know, getting consensus is super important, right? And, and understanding that a common mind think around what that direction needs to look like, so you know, I don't think it's a problem, but it's something that everybody has to work on, right? Particularly when you have a bunch of staff that have lots of different ideas and so I spend time, you know, trying to communicate the direction that we're going to take with the resources that we have, where we have lots of things to choose from, and then focus my time on making sure that there is a common understanding for how that decision is being made, having an open door policy around having people come to me if they have different opinions around that, and then having a culture where you know, when we make a decision, we're going to fall through a decision, right? And we're not going to rethink it. We're going to see it to the end, right? And maybe evaluate it. We do agile development here. It's part and parcel for everything we do from an analytics perspective and a development perspective generally. We can always look at it sprint one, two, three, or four of, of, of one of our development processes. But I think it's, that's really the thing that, that I have some struggling with. I don't have other struggles that other CAOs might have, right, where they, you know, let's say the CTO or CEO doesn't appreciate what the, the value they add, right? Those are not my challenges. My challenges are probably more around making sure that a very, very talented pool of scientists that I have the pleasure of working with understand how I'm making my decisions, the constraints that I have, and give you that common, common groupthink, right? And if you can do that properly, right, then then I think that the team really runs well. If you have a little discord of, of differences of opinion, right, that's where you have to work through it in the very beginning, and you know, that's the, the things that I try to
0: focus on, which you know, take extra time, but are really, really important upfront. Interesting. And, and, and thank you so much for sharing that. So um, one other thing that I want to discuss before we sort of start uh, wrapping it up is opportunities that you see, because I think you have uh, quite a good visibility on on the security uh, fabric of like how data analytics could be used to sort of uh, securing infrastructure and sort of uh, scoring your, your security and all that, right? So what are some of the opportunities that you see for a new entrant in the industry that some of the big problems that you see exist that could have been fixed or, or at least someone could actually... What are some of your thoughts on that, if, if any?
1: Yeah, so, you know, in terms of kind of the, the, the opportunities that are out there, right, um, you know, I, I think there's a couple different thoughts here. Well, one thought is, you know, there, there's an opportunity around making sure that we enable collaboration, right? Um, one of the things that's really powerful that I've learned and, and uh, you know, through my work with Falcon, right, the banks that leverage the Falcon solution, all 9,000 of them, that you know, uh, they're sending data in for the purposes of building these consortium models. So they share data. Right? And they share data not names of addresses, not card numbers, right? but this kind of uh, you know, hash card number and encrypted sort of data only for the purposes of building an analytic at its core. Right? And, and, and what, why they do that? They do that because it's a common industry problem and they share that data and they recognize that. right? And you know, they benefit from that sharing in that the model gets better over time, right? And I look at that example for other parts of our business, and we still don't do a very good job with security sharing the right type of data with one another. There's all these initiatives. Some of them are failing, some are folded, right? Uh, even uh, you know um, the US government has said, well, we're gonna share data back and forth so we have a better sense of cyber threat. There's probably a lot more work to be done to enable you know better ways of sharing in a way that everyone feels comfortable from a a privacy and security perspective for the purposes of bringing more intelligence to to this ecosystem. So that's one, which I think is really important when we look at these kind of big sort of important issues um, where we share data. I think, uh, sorry, share the problem, right? The other um, one I would say generally is, you know, there's probably also opportunity to, to make sure that we... Remain kind of true to you know proper development of analytics. So one of the things that bothers me or worries me Right in, in today in the industry is you know we have lots of tools to do analytics. We have a lot of big data sort of software capabilities, right? Um, we often don't have the right sort of government uh, Around how we build models, right? And so you have this sort of kind of pockets of naivety in how we develop models, right? We have Sort of executives sometimes would say, well, all I need is Spark and, and Python, and I can, you know, I, I can build all these sort of models, right? And, you know, I think that's the other aspect we have to think about is, you know, what are the governance that, that we need to put in place to make sure that we have the right tools for testing, the right tools for monitoring models, right? Leveraging things like autoencoder technology that we, we leverage here at FICO to monitor models and, and how data changes over time. Um, because we have this challenge from a data science perspective, it's way too few data scientists. Um, the education and training has changed over the last 17 years I've been in this, this business right in terms of skill sets and things that are focused on and, you know this sort of set of uh, best practices and tools to monitor models and react to changes I think are going to be really important because we, we need to make sure that we develop models properly, we develop cultures of doing that properly and then monitoring these models over time because if any right we're going to be more and more dependent upon these analytic models whether it be IoT Right, or other areas and you know there has to be a little bit more structure around this um generally right and i think uh, that's probably around collaboration again but maybe a little bit more on the you know methodologies that are employed and the best practices that are employed when it comes to building analytics
0: um with, with kind of dispersed sort of uh, skill sets and experiences no, i think interesting you you a very interesting point so um, uh, i remember a couple of months back i was talking to one of the security expert um uh, and, and he shared the concern that like, like how the antivirus evolved, where you have a lot of sort of in, in infection finding models sort of uh, that, that people aggregate and sell to these uh, antivirus softwares, will be needing the same uh, kind of first ontology in which this model can sort of translate uh, between various platforms. so business could, could have access to all the, the latest and greatest model to, to sort of predict and find and sort of find an infection or, or hack uh, sort of uh, footprints. And solve that problem. So I think you 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 uh, you're, you're absolutely right that there's there's a big big opportunity there. Um, so I, I think uh, uh, one question that definitely I want to have uh, your perspective on are for the up and aspiring leaders. So if anyone who's watching this right, so they want to be chief index officer, like what are some of two or three qualities that you suggest are must have for for a uh, up-and-coming chief analytics officers uh, out there today. So if you can share some of, some, of, some of your thoughts on that, that would be useful.
1: Yeah, so, I, so I'd say, you know, the, the, in, in no particular order, right? I mean, one is your, you need to be business-focused, right? So you have to be solving the customer's problem. You have to understand what your own, you know, your own organization's value, right? Because if you, you need to translate what you do into value, right? So that's the number one, right? You really have to have a good business sense. If you don't have that and you haven't developed that in, in terms of the culture of, of the organization, then you should go look to find out another way, maybe you know, through uh, MBA, maybe through mentorship or what have you. So one is around that very solid business sense. Um, second is around communication. We need to be able to, to talk about what we do. We have to you know, make sure that we can you know be those thought leaders that can influence, right, um, and, and accept feedback from you know, our internal stakeholders, our executives, right, and, and understand you know that we can communicate our points clearly. And we can understand of the points that are being made by by those around us and the third one would really be around you know ensuring that we differentiate from an analytics perspective um, meaning you know we all have to pick areas of our work that we want to specialize in I think I still believe that a chief analytics officer um, needs to be very highly technical right in sometimes it could be a management role right and, and, and I think it can be right but when you look at the staff that you're responsible for, right, they're some of the smartest people from an analyst perspective in your entire organization and I feel that, you know, you need to make sure that you're, you're achieving throughout your career so that they can look at the work you've done, look at, let's say, patents or, or changes you've made within an organization, it doesn't have to be a patent, it could be a paper, it could be a change in process, right, that, um, that they can all look up to you and understand, okay, you know, that, he will understand or she will understand what I'm talking about, why I'm excited about deep learning, why I think it's gonna work well, right? And if you have a comment that you like it or don't like it, you want to change the direction, that they can then say, Okay, yeah, no, I, I get it, I understand your perspective, right? Because if you don't have that trust for your analytics staff, you're not gonna be able to achieve the goals and roadmap you want to do, right? And you have to affect the business. So those are be the three traits, right? Business understanding, strong communication, right, and then you know, a pedigree of proven sort of analytic achievement so that you can have the respect and admiration of, of, of the team, you can lead them on whatever journey you're going to do to transform your business.
0: Interesting. And, and makes sense. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing that, by the way. So uh, I think last, last, and thank you so much for being very generous with your time. Uh, I'm, I'm, I know I'm stepping a bit over, but it was fascinating. So uh, just one question before I let you go. So now let's talk about FICO a bit. Um, so if... A data scientist want to apply to FICO like what are some of the things that you um as, as a leader there look for people who are coming in FICO like what are some of the qualities and some of the sort of traits that you look for as a, as, as your team member in, in in your analytics group if you can share some light on that that would be very useful
1: yeah so so the things that we look for right and it kind of varies depending on the emphasis of the role right but Generally, what we're trying to look for are, are people that have a very solid Ph.D. in, in, in math or sciences or engineering. Um, it doesn't have to be a Ph.D. It could be, you know, a, a thesis topic uh, for a master's or what have you. But essentially, something that shows that, you know, they're inventive, they're creative, they're independent, and they can, you know, think through problems themselves, right? So that's one. Two is going to be around um, coding experience. Right. We, we write a lot of code here. We're not tool users, right? If you have an idea around a new way to implement an algorithm, we're going we're to code up the algorithm, right? And so, you know, Python, Java, you know, uh, C++, what have you. We're looking for those sort of skill sets so that you have a basic coding experience. It's really important to translate that let's say, into the product and processes you work through, right? And then third, right, we're going to look for cultural fit, right? We want to make sure that people communicate well, they can learn from each other, they can take feedback, uh, and they'll be part of a culture that can learn, right? And if people generally have those three skill sets, right, then they're generally good for FICO. We're not actually gonna go and say, well, you have to show them that you can go, yeah, uh, you, know, you have two years of building neural networks, right? We want part, creative, open people that, that, that can kind of learn while at FICO right? Uh, around how to, how to develop. And it's more important to me and my organization and FICO generally to look for really, really bright people they might have different experiences and, and perspectives to kind of add to, you know, the, the, the kind of mix that we have already.
0: Okay. No, uh, and thank you so, so, so much. But I think it, it was very useful. And I do appreciate you uh, spending some kind of time with us and sharing your thoughts and suggestions for our members. And I am barely, uh, so, and sorry for the, the the long detours. I think it was it was fascinating and I, I definitely loved uh, and I hope that um, the viewers would enjoy uh, some of the key pointers that you have around um, using uh, creating a center of excellence for, for cyber and some of the benchmarks on some of the things that you could do as, as, a, as sort of creating the culture of uh, uh, embracing these these qualities. So thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate you and um, looking forward to have a, a following conversation with you down the road um, on your journey. And, and obviously, going through my, my rest of the list. Um, and uh, thank you so much for your time. It's my,
1: my tremendous pleasure, Michelle. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I just, I uh. just, I